People were coming to me and they were like begging me, you gotta help me. There's no one else I can find in my state who's licensed, who's willing to give me ivermectin. Since the start of the pandemic, Dr. Sayed Haider has prescribed ivermectin tens of thousands of times, in many cases offering his services for free. Today, his functional medicine practice primarily focuses on treating long COVID and COVID vaccine injury. In functional medicine, it's basically like medicine on steroids. It's like medicine the way it really should be practiced. And it's the opposite of kind of like Fauci medicine. Dr. Heider is passionate about helping people change their lifestyle habits and tap into their subconscious mind. He argues that your mindset and what you believe can have a profound impact on your health. First, do no harm. Really, the only way you can truly practice that is by doing lifestyle medicine first. There's no harm from eating better and getting some more sun and sleeping properly. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Dr. Syed Haider, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. So you're one of the minds and practitioners behind mygotodoc.com, where you have treat lots of people on a number of areas, but notably around COVID-19. And I, I want to start with that. Um, so tell me about that practice. Sure. So I started it probably at the end of 2020, right after Pierre Corey's Senate hearing went viral. Before that, I had been doing uh, telemedicine through the biggest telemedicine company in the United States. So I was just an independent contractor working with them. And I was trying to get people to try ivermectin and having no success. After Pierre Corey's Senate hearing goes viral, people started searching doctors out online. And I discovered that I could, you know, get patients and actually start treating them, people who are interested in being treated with something effective for COVID-19. You know, the way a normal doctor's visit goes in person, you know, you sit there and you ask them questions and there's this back and forth and it takes 20, 30 minutes. Um, online, what you can do is have them fill out a form and get all the same questions answered screen them, you know, essentially with essentially a protocol and make sure that the medication is safe. And if it's safe, then you prescribe it. So that is really easy and fast to do, especially for prevention, right? They're not actually sick. So I figured out a way, kind of this assembly line where I could get a really large throughput, right? Because people were coming to me and they were like begging me, you got to help me. There's no one else I can find in my state who's licensed, who's willing to give me ivermectin. So this was very early on. You know, nowadays there are many people who are willing to prescribe ivermectin. But at that point, you know, there were a few things that kind of like the stars aligned, right? So one of them was that there was this huge sudden demand. There were not very many people doing it. I ended up having like 45 licenses because they made it easier to get licensed, you know, across borders in different states. So usually it's a, like a six to nine month process to get a new license. I started the pandemic with probably three or four licenses and ended it with about 45. And it was very fast getting there, right? So there were, we were allowed to prescribe across state lines. Um, and then I figured out this way to kind of like streamline it, make it really quick and use, you know, tools, technology tools, as well as human tools, you know, people helping me. I wasn't doing a lot of the paperwork myself. So I outsourced all the, you know, tasks that could be outsourced, you know, almost everything essentially. Um, and this is not like something new. I mean, this has been done for decades. It's just hasn't been done at this scale, right? 
Um, so before the pandemic, it was starting to, being, starting to be used for hair loss, acne, things like that, right? So simple things where you can kind of create a protocol that applies to a lot of people. And you just screen out the people who don't really fit into the protocol, and then you have to call them directly and maybe you know, ask them some other questions that you, know, you haven't figured out an AI system to ask already. Um, but I was able to figure this out, and so that's the reason that I was able to prescribe, at this point, probably 55,000 prescriptions to people in the last couple of years. At the same time, I started seeing people who were actually sick. So I've seen probably eight or 9,000 actually sick people. Those were acute patients, so who were acutely sick with COVID. And then there were, lately, in the last year, year and a half, long COVID and vaccine injuries has made up a probably most of my practice, right? So every, every month, um, the in-person, like the patients that I actually talk to, like those are patients with long COVID and vaccine injuries. I still prescribe a lot of these other prescriptions where it's like, I just want to have something in case I get sick, right? Um, and again, those are easier prescriptions to do because the person's not actually sick. I don't have to actually talk to them. Um, so that's, that's how I was able to prescribe um, as many prescriptions as I did and see as many people as I did uh, because I had a lot of help. So three. Two and a half. Yeah. Two and a half years. You've done something like more than 65,000. So, so the 55,000 includes like 8,000 probably acute and a couple of thousand oh, okay. long COVID and vaccine injuries, yeah. Okay. That's, uh, that's quite a few patients. So there's a doctor in India, I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, he's probably seen 20, 30,000. But yeah, I haven't heard of anyone treating quite that many or prescribing that many. Um, other people were also using this asynchronous model, uh, but they didn't, for whatever reason, reach the scale I did. So my free doctor probably has seen like 300,000 or more, right? But they had probably 300 doctors doing that or, mm -hmm. or even more than that, I don't know. They might have had thousands. Um, the difference with my practice was that it was just me. And what I found with some of these other practices, you know, I don't want to name names, but some of them, you know, it was like a surgeon on his off hours was helping out, right? And so some of them weren't really specialized in this. Like this was all I was doing. I, I sat there and I went through this research and I figured out, you know, how do we actually need to do this and what actually works. And people would come from other practices and they would say, you know, I got prescribed a single dose of ivermectin, you know, because somebody who wasn't really familiar with ivermectin prescribing just looked up, you know, how is it usually prescribed, right? How do you prescribe it for scabies, for example? You give it once and then two weeks later you give it again, right? That's not going to work for COVID. Um, so I did get some patients ending up coming to me uh, who had been incompletely treated or, you know, not given enough. And that got especially, you know, acute once I started seeing long COVID and vaccine injuries. You know, if you just take a single dose, it's not going to do anything. Um, you know, you need to take double doses, triple doses sometimes. You might need to take it for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, right? Um, so I became kind of very specialized in this area. This is all I was doing, and I think I started very early. That was another thing that helped. Um, very early on, there was a website called Existence, um, E-X-S-T-N-C, I think, existence.com. Um, this guy just spun up this website, and it was a place where, I don't know how he chose the name, but where you could go and find doctors willing to prescribe ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine in your state. So I, you know, I stuck my name in there, and once the FLCCC got started, I gave them my name. And so there were a few of these websites where people would go to look for somebody willing to prescribe it. And that's essentially all I did was just like put my name up on three websites. And 
probably what made the difference was I started very early and I was in most of the states very, very soon. And so people came to me. And the other thing that I did different, you know, most telemedicine practices, you go there and you have to pay them something in order to communicate with them, right? You have to, okay, here's 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever in order for me to even ask you a question. And this was kind of a quirk of our software and it ended up being quite helpful for people was that you could register for free and you could ask questions for free and there was no way to charge people for questions. So I was like, okay, we'll just answer all the questions for free, right? Um, and then later we took it a step further and we said, you know, if you can't afford it, just you know, let us know and we'll waive the fee as well. And so, um, and I purposely actually did this. I started off the way my free doctor started off. I started off saying, we're just gonna treat everyone for free and if you can afford it, give us a donation if you'd like, right? And this was, this was working fine, um, but I started realizing that people don't really value what they get for free, right? So, um, and I learned this from a, a Sufi master that I met once uh, in the Middle East. When I saw him, he had, a, he had a book that he wanted to gift to somebody and he asked them, you know, do you have any money? Do you have any pocket change or whatever? And the guy's like, you know, digging in his pocket and he's like, I have like 15 cents. <laughs> he's like, okay, give me the 15 cents, here's the book. And so he explained why he did that. I mean, not that he needed 15 cents, but this, you know, quirk of human nature that if you give some, you know, get something for free, you just, you forget about it, you lose it, you know, you never use it, you never look at it. You assign no value to it, right? Um, so telling people that this service is valuable and it's, the cost is this much. But if you can't pay that, let us know and we'll, you know, you can pay less, tell us how much you can afford or you can pay nothing, right? Um, and so this allowed me to probably prescribe three to 5% of every month, you know, all my prescriptions are these, you know, pro bono prescriptions where I don't charge. Um, but people do what I say, right? They don't get my prescription and they're like, oh, whatever, <laughs> you know. I have a, big complicated protocol and I have like a two hour video for people with long COVID and vaccine injuries like here watch this before you talk to me right and most people end up watching it right most people value the service that I'm giving and they see me as somebody who has helped people and I know what I'm doing so that's the reason that we purposely decided to do it that way still understanding that there are some people who really can't afford it right Mm -hmm. which is perfectly fine. You know, some people might say, and I'm thinking, like, this seems awfully impersonal. How can you really give someone the care they need if you're not really seeing them and digging into it? You know, you hear these stories about these doctors that get someone in the office and, you know, there's a timer and five minutes later they're out and doesn't doesn't sound very professional, right? So, so how does this work? Yeah, and that's a, a drawback of telemedicine in general, right? So it feels impersonal from my end, it feels impersonal from their end, and we try to bridge that gap as best as we can, but there's, it's not gonna be perfect, right? It, what is perfect is to have that personal, like, sit down, I can touch you, you know, I can, like, hold your shoulder, I can look in your eyes, you know, there's pheromones, there's bioelectrical fields, there's all this interaction, right? It's really incredible, we don't even understand it. I mean, I was just reading a book the other day about, bio, um, kind of the bioenergy of human beings, there's actually like a near instantaneous communication when people are talking, right? You'll see them mirror each other instantaneously. There's no lag time. When one person's talking, the other person's reacting. This is not nerve signals, right? This is the, the actual bioelectrical fields interacting with each other at light speed, right? So that obviously you can't do <laughs> through telemedicine. But if you talk to my patients, like we met somebody outside who was one of my patients, right? 
I didn't recognize this guy. I had never seen him in my life, and yet he was thanking me profusely, telling me he had told everyone about you know me. And, and why is that? It's because the, the one thing people tell me over and over again is that your staff is amazing, okay? So people will call my office and they'll talk to somebody, right? Somebody will help them. Oftentimes it's older people who need help filling out the form. You know, it takes like an hour or hour and a half to, and it's just like, you know, it's technology, right? You're 85 years old and you're trying to like fill out a form on a computer. Um, so we have a phone number, people can t call, and you, what we'll try to do is have like one person be your like patient coordinator that like always interacts with you. Um, and so people have this like human touch, right? Even when you're getting the asynchronous prescription, somebody will call you once the prescription is done and like walk through the thing and like make sure you understand it, right? Like it's complicated protocol, right? And so we're gonna tell you like, okay, you know, somebody's gonna actually touch base with you and talk to you. But you're right, I mean, 50,000 people did not talk to me directly, right? And so we did our best. Yeah, but were you, were you going for volume at the outset? I was not aiming for volume, no. Um, I was just trying to help people. Before this started, I would work like five hours a day or something, right? It was like, you know, I'm gonna work and then I'll be done and I'll turn it off and I'll go to bed and I'll enjoy it with my family and I'll travel the world. I mean, I was like a really laid back kind of doctor, right? I would, before the pandemic, I would go and work for a couple of weeks in a hospital and then take off for a couple of weeks. And like I told you before the interview, I, I started doing this kind of free community initiative in the Middle East where I was just like helping people who couldn't afford really anything um, change their lifestyle and actually get rid of all their medications. And this was just like something I was doing in my off time, right? Mm -hmm. So I started off with this kind of like, you know, laid back kind of style, but then there was a tsunami of people who were like knocking down my door in the beginning. And I had to develop this system, otherwise there was nothing I could do. Like I told you, people would come to me from like North Dakota and tell me there is no one, I can't find anyone else on all these websites that list people. I called my doctor, I went to the urgent care, the urgent care doctor gave me your phone number and said call this guy, right? Like there's no one else who can do it, you have to do it, right? So in the beginning, I, would, I was like working 18, 20 hours a day. I mean, it was insane, okay? I was not sleeping, I was working nonstop constantly and and it built up really quickly over like six weeks, maybe eight weeks. And eventually I was just like, I was like pulling my hair out. I was like, I wasn't getting sleep. And finally I hired somebody to help me. And she like, you know, she's kind of like the office manager in the beginning. And, uh, and she just kind of like created all these systems and like developed this software and like developed these, you know, protocols that would help me do my job, right? And make it easier. And then I hired like, you know, medical assistants and, and it just built up to this, you know, rather large staff, actually. I mean, I tell people how many people work for me, and they're shocked. Um, I mean, I, I hesitate to actually say it. There's so many that I need, because there's no AI that's developed for this, right? Like, you could probably create a software that would do most of what these human beings are doing. It just doesn't exist, and I didn't have time to make it or the funds to make it. So there's just a lot of people, right? So there's people who help people do the intake and there's people who call them afterwards and there's people who help me send my prescriptions to the pharmacy and there's, you know, there's all this support staff involved. Um, you know, later on we added health coaches because, you know, it's hard to do lifestyle change. And like I told you earlier, like lifestyle change is really the thing I'm most passionate about because it is the real missing link, right? Like that is why we're so sick. It's because the environment is wrong, right? It's like you're, you're the frog being boiled in water really slowly, right, over the last 50 years. And you don't realize that you're in a boiling pot of water until you're dead. Um, that's where we are as a society. And 
if you fix that, if you, and if you just look at it from an you're an evolutionary biologist, right? If you look at things from an evolutionary lens, what kind of environment did we evolve, evolve in, right? That must be the one that's optimal for us, right? So it's not really that hard. You know, you can do studies and confirm things. You know, grounding works and cold exposure works and sunlight works and fasting works and you know sleeping works and you know you can dig into the biochemistry and understand why all those things work and prove prove they work. But I would say you don't really have to prove it. Right? Evolution proves it for you, right? Like we evolved in a certain environment, and if you put yourself back in that environment, you will be healthy, right? Many fascinating things you've just said, and lifestyle being critical, and of course, you know, this is, this is a big part of your whole vision of medicine. So before we go into that, mm -hmm. tell me about where you come from. How is it that you ended up in the Middle East doing this work? How is it that you became a doctor? Both my parents are actually engineers, and I, initially as an 18 year old kid was looking at the world around me you know the internet boom and i was like you know what i just want to make money okay i'm just going to go do electrical engineering and computer engineering and go work for you know yahoo or something um and my heart was not in it i just like crashed and burned after like a few months and then i was like floundering and my dad was worried about me right so he's like what can i do to help you out right and so he's like why don't you go backpacking in Chile for a month or two. And I was really excited about this. And so I'm training to go backpacking in Chile for six months. And, uh, and I sprained my ankle. And this is while I was jogging. I sprained my ankle really bad, so I couldn't go. So the next idea was like, um, why don't you go to like the Maldives or something and you know, just hang out on a beach? And so like eventually he was like, well, you used to be interested in medicine, right? Why don't you apply to med school? Um, in Pakistan, where my father's from, because I had basically dropped out of college, right? So I had tried to do electrical engineering, and and then after a couple of years, I just dropped out. I actually went to University of Florida on a scholarship. I mean, I was one of that was like one of the best students in my high school, right? Great SAT scores, really smart kid, on a scholar, full scholarship to University of Florida, and I dropped out after a couple of years because I just couldn't find anything I wanted to do. And so there was a roadblock, right? I was always interested in medicine in high school, and yet I was looking into the future, like gonna take four years of med school, four years of residency, before med school, four years of college, right? And then like three or four years of residency. This is like a decade plus of my life to become a doctor, right? There's, I just can't do that, right? I don't have the, you know, the wherewithal to get through all of that. I don't have the patience for it. And so my dad, um, he kind of like hacked my mind, all right? So he was like, so first of all, he figured out that you didn't need the pre-med to do med school overseas. So there's their work on the British system in the Middle East and, and uh, in the subcontinent where you can just do med school right out of high school. And they make the course longer. So it's five years instead of four years because they include pre-med in the course itself. So he was like, okay, you can go to Pakistan. My sister is a teacher in the med school in Pakistan. So I applied, I got in, I went over there, and literally from the first month, I just loved it. I was like, oh my God, this is great. I love all the courses. Um, and so, you know, this baby step, you know, just do the first thing, do the thing right now, actually applies to really everything, right? Like what stops people from doing everything they know they should do? It's because it seems so overwhelming, right? It's like, I gotta like eat different, and I gotta sleep different, I gotta exercise more, I gotta get more sunlight, I gotta have good social relationships, I gotta have intimacy in my life, you know, I gotta stop drinking, I gotta stop smoking. You know, it's like overwhelming, you know? It's like, who can do all that? 
Um, and so this is what I teach people in my practice and also kind of the lifestyle component in my practice. We have this coaching program is just do one thing, like something that's really, really easy. And it's really important to make it super easy, right? Like something that you can do like for the next 60 days or even 60 years. So whatever that is, it should be something that speaks to you. And so, you know, what this reminds me of, I actually, you know, I was under so much stress, not sleeping well, you know, like I said before, for a couple of years and I stopped exercising, I stopped walking, I stopped going outside, I gained 50 pounds, okay? <laughs> Which I lost, okay? I, I don't have those 50 pounds anymore. This is actually way too big for me. Um, and, but the way I did it, the, the, the one thing I did first was just imagine myself weighing 50 pounds less, right? That, that was the one thing I changed, was just visualizing myself and feeling grateful for it. That's the only thing I did for like a couple of weeks. Everything else just kind of like followed on from that, like naturally, right? I just started doing other things when they kind of like seemed natural to do them, right? And were effortless to do. So there was no effort involved with like changing the way I ate or deciding to walk in the morning or starting to do cold plunges or, you know, I, at this point I do a lot of stuff, right? I sleep a lot better. You know, I get sun in the morning. I wear blue blocker sunglasses at night. I mean, I, I do all these things. I do like a hundred things. But if I tried to do them in the very beginning, it, it would have fallen apart. So, you know, you, you became a medical doctor in Pakistan. You came back to the U.S. You did your, board, you know, your yeah. exams and everything. But you became a functional medicine practitioner somewhere along the way. And so a little bit about, frankly, what that is, because I think a lot of people don't mm. actually understand what that is. And two, I want to get back to, you know, that side work that you seem to be doing around lifestyle in the Middle East. Um, so I did my residency at York Methodist in Brooklyn for three years, internal medicine, and then I started doing hospital medicine. And, um, you know, it was quite rewarding, right, initially. But after a few years, you start realizing, so with hospital medicine, you just treat people in the hospital. So they come into the hospital, you treat them, you send them home to their PCP to take care of the rest of you know, their problems. Um, and so you don't follow up with them. You don't see them throughout the entire course of their life, and you're just there with them while they're really, really sick. You know, a case would come to me, and I would do a lot of research on it, right? So I came across like vitamin D very early, right? in the first probably year that I was working. And I happened to be in a small town somewhere in like Georgia or something, maybe South Carolina. And it was like primarily a black community. Um, and every single person I checked without fail was either low or undetectably low. Like probably a quarter of them, you couldn't even detect vitamin D in them, right? So every single black patient in this hospital that I was seeing had low vitamin D. This was over the course of months, right? So I'm seeing like 20 patients a day for months, right? And so this was like shocking to me. I was like, you know, what are we doing as a society, right? Like vitamin D is probably why these people are sick in the first place, right? Um, or the lack of it. The lack, the lack of, of it, it. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Um, and such a simple intervention, right? And I think a lot of your viewers know that it's quite, quite important for COVID-19 as well. Um, it's quite important for a lot of things, but it's just a, it's a secondary marker for sunlight, right? Sunlight actually is the thing that's missing from people's lives. It's not vitamin D. It's the sun, and the sun has far more going on than just vitamin D. It's got infrared, it's got a lot of other things. So I started becoming interested in this functional medicine, as you said. And functional medicine, it's basically like what medicine should be, right? If, if people are familiar with House, right, that TV show, that's what he does, right? He's like gets to the bottom of things and figures out what's the root cause and let's fix it, right? It's like medicine on steroids. It's like medicine the way it really should be practiced. Um, 
and, and it's the opposite of kind of like Fauci medicine, right? Like the NIH version of medicine where it's like, okay, does it make a million dollars or $10 billion, right? If it does, then we'll prescribe it, right? And we'll recommend it. Uh, so it's the stuff that actually works. Um, still, I think you gotta go a step beyond functional medicine to be truly healthy because, or at least most functional medicine physicians, um, they stop at looking at the patient like figuring out what's wrong with them and then correcting that abnormality, right? The biochemical abnormality or the chronic infection that's leading to their illness. Um, and the failing of that is that it's not really digging into what are the subconscious drivers of a lot of the disease. So people are familiar with placebo effects. So nocebo is the opposite of placebo. So placebo is, you know, you take a sugar pill and you feel better. Nocebo is somebody maybe says the wrong thing to you. Like they implant this suggestion in your mind, perhaps like a doctor oftentimes will tell you something that actually creates illness, right? So they suggest to you that maybe you'll get this side effect and then you do, right? Or maybe this will happen to you. Maybe you'll die in six months, right? Like you have six months to live and oftentimes we'll see people die like on the dot six months later. So the mind is quite powerful and there's, there's yeah. So, so my presentation at this conference uh, goes into some of this and it's shocking stuff, okay? I mean, it, it blows, it blew my mind, right? So there's, there's actually a lot of really good data that the mind is far more powerful than we imagine and it's the subconscious, it's not your conscious mind, right? So it can create disease with the recipe that's available to it. So for example, you got spike protein in your body, you, maybe you don't eat well, maybe you smoke, you know, maybe your liver's a little bit shot, you know, you've got all these little ingredients floating around, but you're not sick, right? And then suddenly you get sick. So you ask people, why now, right? Like, why are you sick? And what you'll find is that usually they'll think of something. And, and there's a great book on this, Steve Bierman uh, goes into this a little bit, and, and a number of people have written about it, but, but essentially, like, you'll find that oftentimes there's like a secondary gain involved with the illness if you dig deep enough that there's like a reason, the, like the sickness is there to do something beneficial for you, even though it fe feels really bad and you like surface level, you don't want it, right? You think you don't want it, but deep down there's some reason for it. Um, so most people don't address that level of the human being, I right? Think, I think most people won't, aren't gonna accept what you just said. Right, so, so yeah. it takes some time to convince people, right? It takes a couple of hours, right? You, you need to sit with the person, go through the data, go through the research, lead them along this path, which we obviously don't have time for. So it's, I'm not saying the mind is entirely creating the disease, right? Like it's taking things, right? Like, so why were you not sick before and you're sick now? Why does your knee hurt sometimes and other days it doesn't hurt? Why does your back, like why does your pinched nerve act up some days and some days it doesn't, right? Obviously there's something else going on, right? So, so people will tell you, oh, you've got a pinched nerve, you've got a slipped disc, you've got this and that. And yet for months you have no problem. And then suddenly you have a problem, right? And you're like, oh yeah, I bent over or something, but it's also moving day, or it's also like, you know, your mom just died, or you know, there's also something else, right? Or there's some stress going on. Um, so anyway, like I point out to people that like, it doesn't quite add up, right? It's not just a slip disc. There's something else, right? Um, it's not just bone on bone in your knee because like, why were you perfectly fine for the last three weeks? And then, you know, while you were on vacation and now suddenly it's like crippling pain and you can't even walk, right? You can look at the x-ray and see, oh yeah, there's bone on bone but then it doesn't hurt every day, right? Why, why doesn't it? And then the point is that you could give them a bunch of supplements and fix that appearance on the x-ray, and maybe it becomes harder to manifest that illness, right? So your subconscious is like, 
well, we were using that to like get some secondary gain. Maybe we were on disability, for example, right? Because we were sick, we couldn't work, right? But now we can't use that anymore because you've started, you know, piling on all these medications and supplements, and that problem is gone now, right? Those the recipe, the ingredients that were there for me to allow that disease to manifest are now gone. So I got to find something else, right? So what you'll find is you'll you'll fix a problem for somebody with functional medicine. You'll get to the physical underlying cause of that problem, but you don't address the mental cause, the subconscious cause, the subconscious reasons for it, and it pops up somewhere else. It's whack-a-mole, okay? This happens all the time, right? You fix one thing and something else pops up. You fix that, something else pops up. So there's this pressure in the system and it's gonna be released somewhere, hmm. right? So you gotta fix the pressure. You gotta go to the real, real source. And so lifestyle is very important, but like one of the studies I'm gonna show uh, during my presentation is there's even a placebo effect with exercise, okay? So they took a group of hotel cleaners and they split them up, right? Two groups. One group, they just told them simply that the work you do every day already qualifies as a lot of exercise. You're burning this much, this many calories. You meet the Surgeon General's recommendations for daily exercise. The other group, they just tell them about exercise without pointing that out to them. So after a month, the group that they told you're actually exercising, um, they do nothing differently. They don't eat differently, they don't go to the gym, they don't work more, like nothing is different, and yet they lose two pounds. Doing nothing different, their blood pressure drops 10 points, doing nothing different, right? Just being told something, right? And so they realize that what they're doing is healthy. Oh, I'm healthier than I thought I was, right? There's a lot of these documented studies showing that there's the, what you believe, and it's not just the superficial level, it's like at a subconscious level, what you deeply believe has a profound impact on your health. And so this piece is missing from most medicine, from most, I mean, from all medicine that I know of, but even from most functional medicine, they're not addressing this piece of people. Um, and it's something that is difficult to address. That's why it's not addressed, right? So um, like I mentioned earlier, Steve Bierman wrote a book about this, Healing Beyond Pills and Potions. He's a master NLP practitioner, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming. Mm -hmm. So he points out, like, he can easily teach people how to give painless injections, do painless sutures on patients without giving them anesthetic, right? Uh, he's even delivered babies without anesthesia, right? And all he does is say things to the person, right, in a certain way, right? And they're such simple words that he can teach any, like, he's taught other people after like an hour how to give a painless injection to a five-year-old child right, how to uh, suture somebody without any anesthetic, how to, like he can, he was famous for a while, so he went on like probably CBS and stuff, and so he could like give these verbal suggestions to people and slow down their heart rate or stop their bleeding, like somebody comes in with a big gash on their hand and they're gushing blood, and he'll just say a few choice words and the bleeding stops, right, like the person stopped their own bleeding, right, like they don't know how they did it, but they do. Um, and so you can talk to the subconscious mind if you know how to do it, if you've been trained properly, and so you can learn how to do that. Um, and there are people who know how to do it, and they can help people address that subconscious you know, desire. So, and are, so is this part of your practice, I guess? It's something that I'm trying to develop into the practice, right? So we're trying to see how we can develop that into a telemedicine practice. I've always known that I do, like I'm one of these people who believes, you know, it's like a religious belief for me, essentially, that every disease has a cure, okay? Not all people believe that, right? Um, and so you'll go to a lot of doctors who are very negative, 
with long haulers and vaccine injured patients, um, and they might tell you that you have an 80% chance of getting better, right? But there's 20% of people who will never get better. In my experience, they're just not going to make it. I don't say that, right? So, so there's these communication things that can be built into your public-facing persona, into all of your videos that you do, right, where you're saying things in a certain way, right, where you're not being negative, where you're not being like a fear monger, and you're actually giving people hope. Sure, you got to tell people there, there might be side effects to the drug. So the way you do it is you say, some people, right, you gesture over there, like some other people, right, this is what this patient is thinking subconsciously, it's not me, he's talking about other people. So some people might experience dizziness with ivermectin. Um, but you, I'm sure, will be fine. Like most of my patients, you know, I think that you'll probably do great. You know, you'll get better and hopefully have no side effects. So, so just these very simple changes in the way that you communicate can have profound effects on the, the experience that the person has of their illness. And sure, like maybe they would have gotten better anyway, right? But at least they didn't suffer through, you know, fear, you know, all this fear and anxiety. But I think that it actually does help some people actually get better as well, right? So, so the data is there for, for some of these interventions and, and it's there in his experience and, and my experience as well. Like if you communicate properly with people, they, um, I think they can start to create this health themselves. They can start manifesting it in a way. A lot of these people that are vaccine injured, this in many cases severely, actually what they're told, this is what strikes me given everything you've said, what they're told is actually this is all in your head. The, the common thread is that all, everybody treats them poorly, yeah. like they're crazy yeah, yeah. and so forth. And they can't actually get treatment for very real symptoms. So the reason I'm jumping into this because this is just like a stark juxtaposition to everything you just talked yeah, about. Sure. Yeah, so, so there's a, you know, I wanna make a distinction here that when the mind creates disease, there is a physical disease in your body, right? There are physical changes in your body. And if you know where to look, you will find them right? You will find the disease, right? So with vaccine injured people, oftentimes the only thing people will come to me that's positive, right? Like they'll do MRIs, they'll do CT scans, they'll do a million dollars worth of lab tests. And finally, somebody might do a, you know, a skin biopsy and do a, you know, find um, small fiber neuropathy, right? So sometimes you find that. There are a lot of tests I can do that I can run, a lot of very specialized tests that will show your problem, right? So I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying that people who, you know, have like a, you know, there's this element, this is a piece of the puzzle, right? Your mind is a piece of the puzzle. It's a part of your environment, right? The mind is part of the environment of your body, right? So your mind is affecting your body, right? Physically, right? And so the thoughts you think, the emotions you have, the way you interpret events, right? Stressful events, it can either be positive or negative, right? The interpretations you assign to things. So those have physical effects on your body. And so you'll find microclotting, right? You'll find the spike protein, you'll find inflammation, you'll find, you know, sometimes white cells elevated, sometimes D-dimer elevated. There, there's all these things you can find if you know where to look. If you look under the right rocks, you'll find the problem. And so I'm not gaslighting people. It's not all in your head. It's not, you know, a functional problem. I, I think every problem has an element of this mind or functional kind of disorder in it, but there's like a real physical issue as well. And so, so what is health? Health is taking away what's harmful, right? And giving your body what it, what it needs. That's essentially all it takes to be healthy is remove the harm and give yourself the nutrients you need 
for your body to do what it normally does, which is just heal, right? You cut yourself, it heals, right? You don't have to take a medicine to heal the cut, right? Um, you don't need to kiss the boo-boo to heal. Maybe you do, I don't know. But uh, so, so like, you know, love and like attention and all of these things are part of that environmental, you know, um, the, the, the framework that helps people be healthy. Um, and if you have all of those nutrients that you need, not just like physical nutrients, but emotional nutrients um, in place, and you remove all the harmful things from your environment, including the spike protein from your body, you can regain health. You know, another thing that strikes me since we're talking about this is you've probably heard the term safe and effective <laughs> a few times, right? And we've heard it in the media. We've heard people say it to each other. We've heard people say it with indignance when someone would suggest otherwise, right? And that also has an effect. Yeah, so there's one important thing that, I, that this brings up for me that I want to mention before I forget it, which is every medical intervention has some risk, okay? So ivermectin is far over on the spectrum of like extremely safe, but it's still a medication, right? It's not something that's naturally found in your body maybe it has negative effects that we're not going to see for 10 years if you're on it for six months straight. I don't know, right? So there's an unknown factor with any medical intervention. I don't care how safe it is, there will be a possibility of harm. So first do no harm, really the only way you can truly practice that is by doing lifestyle medicine first. It has to be lifestyle first. Mm. There's no harm from eating better and getting some more sun and sleeping properly and exercising. You know, like, obviously you can overdo it, right? You can hurt yourself, but within the limits of like what is normal and natural, right? It's not harmful to be in a natural, normal, healthy environment, right? That is by definition good for you, right? So it's a matter of figuring out what that normal is and not exceeding those bounds, right? You don't want to sleep too much. You don't want to sleep too little. You don't want to exercise too much, not too little. So taking that middle path is important. Um, so safe and effective really only applies absolutely to lifestyle that we know of, right? Ivermectin could be completely safe and effective for a specific person, it's possible, but there's no way for me to know that because I can't follow you for the next 50 years of your life after giving you an ivermectin dose today, right? I will never know whether it changed some subtle thing in your biochemistry or in your DNA or in your mitochondrial biochemistry, or your mitochondrial DNA, or in your microbiome's biochemistries, or their genomes, right? There are, these are all part of us, right? Like we tend to think of the microbiome as separate, like this other. It is you, okay? It is making hormones for you. It is um, digesting things for you. It's creating nutrients for you, right? You're a super organism. You're like a, you know, um, like a forest, right? That's what you are. You're not just your own cells. Um, so I don't know how drugs and things will interact with all of those extremely complex systems um, over the long term. Vaccines certainly have been proven to be not safe and completely ineffective um, for COVID-19. Um, and, and many of the medications that are recommended for COVID-19, I mean, it's like, you know, it's, we're living in 1984. It's like words mean the opposite, right? You say safe and it means unsafe. You say effective and it means ineffective, right? When you hear it from the halls of government, at least. What I'm trying to get at is that has a profound impact on psychology, yeah, hearing yeah, yeah. those words associated with these products. Yeah, so this is another good point, and I'm not sure it's the point you're aiming at, but um, P 
people are affected subconsciously and uh, emotionally, and there is a social contagion that happens, okay? So there was a social contagion of fear with the coronavirus. A lot of people have been convinced that the vaccines are safe and effective, okay? They're deeply convinced of this. And so they will completely discount anything that interferes with that conviction. So the doctors will have blinders on when you come to them, you know, the day after a shot, you're passing out, you have a heart attack, and no matter what happens, okay, it's not the vaccine. It couldn't have been because it's safe and effective. It doesn't do that, right? Um, and the patients are exactly the same way. So I'll have patients come to me who it took them a really long time for those blinders to like disappear for them, right? And uh, like I, I can think of patients, it took like 12 months or 15 months or 18 months of going to lots of different specialists with obvious vaccine injury, okay? Um, and everyone's like scratching their head and ordering all these tests and like it's all in your head, right? There's nothing wrong with you. I can't find anything wrong with you, right? With all the stuff that I know to do. Um, and, uh, and they go home and they're like, what is, what's going on? You know, maybe it is all in my head, right? And so they're being gaslit, right? And, and eventually they somehow fall down a rabbit hole online or they find some community or they meet somebody who opens their eyes and tells them that like, hey, maybe it was the shot. And, and so the lucky people put two and two together and they end up at my doorstep or somebody else's doorstep and, and they get the help that they need. Um, but yeah, so there's this placebo effect actually, you know, happening with anything, with any intervention. So people, there's a healthy user bias and there's this placebo effect involved with the vaccines too, right? So some people, they're like, yeah, I got the shot. I'm good, you know? Um, and so, and there may, their subconscious mind may actually be able to overcome some of the issues that pop up. So it's not like everyone who got the shot gets sick. Right? Um, it's hard to pin down exactly how many people, like what percentage of people get myocarditis. It's hard to say, right? Like I've, I've asked everyone, I've asked Peter McCullough. He can't really say with certainty because there's no control group, right? We lost the control group. We lost the placebo. We unblinded it, right? We didn't continue it the way we should have. Um, so anyway, my point is that some people, you know, I asked them, like my brother, one of my brothers got vaccinated, right? And he's completely convinced they're safe. His his father-in-law just died suddenly in a supermarket, okay? In his 50s, like very healthy. It, it probably the healthiest he'd been in years, right? He had lost a bunch of weight, suddenly passes away in front of his wife, right? He's just like suddenly drops on the ground. And the first thing I think of is vaccine. I, I can't even bring it up to my brother, right? Like it's not even on his radar, okay? His wife, it's not on her radar. It's the, and I'm like, what do I say, you know? I mean, I, I've sent him the information, I've tried to tell him, and like, and it's still not on his radar, right? Like, people are so brainwashed. Um, and so, so my brother has no problems that I know of, right? Maybe there's something brewing, right? We, you know, at the beginning of this conference, they asked like everyone, like, who knows somebody who died from this or who got injured from this? And eventually the entire room is standing up. I mean, everyone knows somebody who got injured from these shots at least everyone who's here. And I think everyone in the world does know somebody, they just don't realize it, right? Unfortunately, people go down and they go down this fear rabbit hole online. And I try to tell my patients, don't go there, right? Like sometimes even my own Twitter feed has a bunch of fear on it, right? I'm trying to wake people up, but you don't need to see it, okay? You already know there's a problem. 
you need to focus on positivity. You need to focus on the body can heal anything, right? You don't need to dig into like all the micro minutia details of how the spike protein is harming you and what it's doing to your DNA and blah, 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 right? You don't need to worry about that, right? Your body can heal anything. Okay, that's what you need to think. That's what you need to focus on. That's what you need to like fill up your mind and heart with, right? Positivity, gratitude, you know, and this works, okay? People get better, but you have to edit your experience. This is very important in the modern world. Remove the things that are harming you. And some of those things are just ideas. As we finish up, you know, people who might be concerned, they have some injury, maybe they've taken many boosters, they've changed their minds. What should people be doing, you know, other than thinking positively? Yeah, so the first thing that I tell people is you can get better. You know, oftentimes I tell people you will get better if you do what I say, okay? Um, so I'm very confident that everyone can heal from this. Um, it's just a matter of what's holding you back from healing, right? Are you willing to do what it takes to heal? And not everyone is. So a lot of people that come to me, they get 80, 90, 95% better, and they stop there because it's good enough for them, right? They don't want to go the last you know, mile. And that's fine, right? I am here to help people, and I will meet them wherever they're at, and I'll try to pull them to where I want them to go, where I think that they need to go, and I'll do my best to take them there. But I don't get everyone there, right? So a lot of people who come to me, they're like, you know, I just want to try ivermectin. And I'm like, sure. Yeah, let's try ivermectin. Because at least 80, 85% of people get like 90, 95% better just taking ivermectin. Other people, you know, I've seen, and, and there's data on this, right? So Tom Bunker, for example, has shown that like just intermittent fasting, just that one thing, nothing else, <laughs> will get like 80% of people 90 plus percent better. The thing that works for the person, like sometimes it's a matter of trial and error. Sometimes ivermectin doesn't work for a particular person. Sometimes we've got to try Truvada. Sometimes we have to try something else. But once you hit on the thing that works, it usually gets people like 90% right there. And then the last little bit, you know, it's, it's, your, it's your mind. And it might be some other things that you need to clean up in your lifestyle and diet. Um, and maybe there's another medication that, that'll get you the, the rest of the way. Um, but people need to know that they can heal from this, okay? Whether they got the shot or they got the virus, whether they have long COVID from you know, multiple viral infections or multiple shots, I don't care, right? I don't care, the, the hardest people to treat are the people who've been sick the longest. And it's partly because there's been ongoing damage and inflammation, but again, it's just like you're just, you've been cutting yourself in the same spot over and over again. So you've got a chronic wound. Yeah, it's gonna take longer to heal, but the first step is to stop cutting yourself in the same spot over and over again, right? Once you stop that, it's just a matter of supporting the tissue, you know, giving your body what it needs. Maybe you need to stitch it up a little bit, you know, maybe you need to pull the edges together over time, right? You, maybe you need to do a little bit of helpful things, but if you are patient enough, you will get there, right? And I mean, in functional medicine, oftentimes they'll tell you, for every year you've been sick, give yourself at least a month to get better. <laughs> With spike protein disease, maybe a little bit longer than that, right? If you've been sick for a couple of years, maybe you need four to six months, right? I don't know. Um, and to get you there, right, to get you as far as I'd like you to go, we've tried to create, like, tools, right? And so the most effective tool I've found for helping people change their lifestyle, which is a big component of getting better, I mean, 
I got better from long COVID only using lifestyle, okay? I didn't use any medications, not even any supplements, okay? That's just the, kind of the guy I am, okay? Um, and I've seen other people do it too. Small group setting, right, is incredibly effective for convincing people to make changes to their life, right? So we have small groups with a health coach that takes people through, like you teach them, you know, what helps. And there's this placebo effect, like I mentioned earlier with the exercise. Once you know what you're already doing is beneficial, it actually becomes more beneficial just because you know it's beneficial, okay? But then there's another step. Okay, there's these things I'm not doing. And look how beneficial they are. Maybe I should start doing them. I wanna tell the group that I did the thing we talked about last week, so I'm gonna do something so I can join the group next week and tell them. So this we're trying to expand to the entire community and make it like actually free. And the way we're trying to do that is by offering like the, the coursework itself to like group leaders, right? Like maybe you take the course and maybe you wanna start up your own little support group, right? Everyone will get the thing for free, right? And you can meet as much as you want and everyone has access to the course for free. And lifestyle is not an easy thing to change. So it's much harder than a single addiction, right? It's much harder than just quitting alcohol, right? So you need like a 12-step support group for lifestyle, right? For your whole life, right? Because it's so easy to just go with the flow because 99.99% of people are just doing everything wrong, okay? Um, to do everything right is hard. But if you have a small support group, it's a lot easier. Um, so that's what I tell people, you can get better. You can heal from this, right? And how much better you get is up to you. Well, Dr. Syed Haider, it's such a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure, absolutely. Um, anytime, this was fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining Dr. Syed Haider and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.